All right, we have three short texts this morning. Kids, you're dismissed to your class. Three short texts and four people, each of whom has an important quality in common that's vital to us. And I'll try to be brief this morning. We've already had a great service, haven't we? You're going to see these passages in your bulletin. We're going to just kind of summarize them and turn to them. We'll finish up in Acts. But um, let's just kind of take a few moments and get some spiritual context and some perspective here on each of these people. And then we'll develop the point and ask the Lord to really teach us and help us to understand. First Samuel chapter two. Let's start there where we see this young boy, Samuel, who lived at a time where the text says any word from the Lord was rare. How would you like to live in that kind of time? Any word from the Lord was rare because it was a time of gross immorality extending all the way down to the religious leaders. The priest in the temple was a man named Eli. He was backslidden. He was indifferent. He didn't really care anymore. He had two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, who were desecrating the temple and who were um, doing all sorts of things that were dishonoring to the Lord and were stealing from the Lord. And Samuel placed in the middle of this as a young boy to serve in the temple because his mother, Hannah, had made a promise to the Lord that if, she gave, if he gave her a son, that she would dedicate him to the Lord. So from an early age, Samuel is in the temple, and he has a special calling on his life. And the text, we're not going to read all of it, just a few verses this morning, but the text says that Samuel stayed near the ark. The ark of the covenant was in the temple, and he had the opportunity to be able to be near God's presence continually. But verse 7 tells us, we'll start reading in verse 8 in a moment, that Samuel didn't know the Lord yet, that he didn't understand a relationship with the Lord. He didn't understand the depth of God's love and mercy or the unique calling that was on his life. And yet he was open to listen to the Lord. He was a willing servant. So when the Lord calls him twice in the night, Samuel's resting and sleeping and he hears a voice and he thinks it's Eli calling to him and he runs in and he says, it wasn't me. Go back to sleep. He hears the voice again. Eli comes. Uh, when he comes to Eli, he says, Eli says, not me. Go back to sleep. The third time it happens, Eli understands what's going on. Pick it up in chapter 1 and verse 8. I'm sorry. Chapter. Sorry about that. Chapter 3. Forgive me. Chapter 3 and verse 8. Then Eli discerned that the Lord was calling the boy. And Eli said to Samuel, go lie down, and it shall be that if he calls you, you shall say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. So Samuel went and laid down in his place. Then the Lord came and stood and called, as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And Samuel said, speak, for your servant is listening. Now, think of all the possibilities of how a child could respond to that kind of situation. The one that kind of grabbed me at first was, what are you talking about, old man? What, what's going on here? What in the world? What is this voice? This is strange. Why, are, why is this happening? What's going on? Is this some kind of weird situation? I mean, remember, he doesn't know the Lord at this point. What, why, why should I listen to this? I keep getting out of bed and coming in here, and I hear this voice, and you say it's not you. I don't even really know why I'm here. My mom promised me to you, and I'm here, and I'm in this place, and I'm serving, but but there's no way I'm going to do what you told me to do. 
But that wasn't Samuel. That wasn't his response, even at a young age. Already his heart is softened to the Lord from being near the presence of God. So when the calling and the assignment comes, he's ready to serve. And it says, if you look down at verse 19, that from that point on, the Lord was with him. Now keep that in your mind. Let's turn to the next passage in Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah was a prophet who couldn't get a lot of people to listen. Even though the people of Israel had not yet been scattered, even though they've been in in rebellion and turmoil and indifference, which is deep down in their hearts, they haven't yet been scattered. And God continues to give them an opportunity to turn back to him. They didn't have a lot of good examples. There weren't a lot of great kings like David who led them in the way of the Lord. We see one mentioned in verse 1 of chapter 6, Uzziah, who happens to die at this time. Uzziah, we know from Second Chronicles 26, was a king who started out very well at a young age. And God blessed him and honored him, and he was very wise. And as long as he sought the Lord, Second Chronicles 26 says, as long as he sought the Lord, God blessed him. But toward the middle of his life, Uzziah decided he didn't need the Lord anymore. And he stopped calling, and he got to the place where he decided that he was going to take over, and he goes into the temple, and he starts to usurp the priest's job. And God confronted Uzziah in the temple, and he caused leprosy to break out on his forehead and his body, and he isolated him for the rest of the life, his life. He became an outcast who never repented against the Lord. And he really typified Israel at this time. So it's no coincidence that in the year that Uzziah died, who typified the, the good start and the bad finish of Israel, that Isaiah comes along. Now, Isaiah had remained faithful to his calling. He had been a faithful minister, a faithful prophet to God's word, to give it to them who didn't really care, a nation that was just shut down emotionally, that, that spiritually did not just give any reason of loving the Lord whatsoever. So we get to chapter 6, and Isaiah has a vision that we've studied before of the Lord on his throne. And I'd like to start in verse 3, because he sees the Lord, and he sees the angels around the throne. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, woe is me, for I am ruined, because I'm a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs, and he touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, and your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and whom shall go for us? And I said, here am I, send me. Isaiah is overwhelmed by the holiness of God. He's overwhelmed by the awesomeness of God. And as he realizes who God is, again, he is struck by how spiritually impure he is. By how completely unclean he is. And he says, woe is me. I, I'm, a, I'm an awful man. I'm a person who has no hope. I have unclean lips and I am ruined. In other words, there's no way I can stand in the presence of holy God and claim my resume. There's no way I can stand before the presence of holy God and say, I'm good enough to be in heaven with you. So Isaiah feels the weight of his own sin and he's, he's humbled and he's broken and he realizes he has absolutely no hope. 
Look at the text until the angel comes and says, this is the mercy of God. God is willing to forgive your sins. God is willing to take all your sin away. God is willing to remove the iniquity that controls your life. Now, we know that the only way that is possible is through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. We know that it's God coming down and taking our place and sacrificing on the cross and taking our sin with him so that sin would be removed from our lives. When Christ rose again, the weight of all that sin was removed. And when we trust in him, he says what he says to Isaiah in here in Isaiah 6, 7. He says, your sin's gone. How many know that's true this morning, that your sin's gone? Oh, I'm still a sinner. But when God looks at me, he says, it's all gone. There's nothing left. All I see is purity and the purity is because of me. This is what Isaiah understands. He sees the grace of God on display where sin is taken away. And then after God has forgiven, look at what he says next in verse eight. He says, now who's going to go? Who's going to go? Who's going to stand for the Lord? Who's going to tell people about his love and his mercy and his forgiveness? And Isaiah, I'm telling you now, they're not going to listen to you. They're spiritually insensitive. They're resistant. And Isaiah says, it doesn't matter. I'll go. Send me. I'm willing to be the one that will go. Now, let's tie that into our last passage in Acts chapter 10. This is setting up our point now. Let's get our final reference here in Acts chapter 10. We're going to see two people. Saul, who was a Pharisee. A Pharisee was someone who was highly religious, who relied on four things, really, for his salvation. His social standing, his knowledge, his zeal, and his good works. So Pharisees made a show of themselves. They were highly respected in society. They were people that drew attention to themselves. Socially, they were as high as you get. Religiously, they were as high as you get. And they took great pride in their intelligence and their knowledge and their zeal and all the good works that they did for God. And yet, it meant nothing. Saul says in Philippians that he was the Pharisee of Pharisees. If there was anybody that was exemplary, about this work salvation, it was him. His commitment was so fervent and his pride was so intense that when these Christians come along, these followers of Jesus Christ, that Saul says, I'm going to get rid of them. And he starts to persecute the church. He was the first terrorist. He goes house to house. He drags people out, men, women, children. He doesn't care. He drags them out and either puts them in jail or he kills them. And the church is is hammered by this. Even though the gospel is spreading, the church is growing, people are getting saved, they're gathering to pray, they're spreading the gospel. Now the church starts to take its first hit. And as it expands, it now faces opposition. And the prime person, the major threat, was this man, Saul. But the Lord says, now I'm going to change you. I'm going to show the evidence of my grace with the person who hates the church the most. And in Acts, God confronts Saul as he's walking on the road to Damascus to find more Christians to persecute. And he confronts Saul and says, why are you persecuting me? Jesus himself appears and says, you're doing the wrong thing. And in that moment, on the road to Damascus, as Paul is kneeling on the ground with a bright light shining around, the Lord talking only to him. Paul turns his life to Christ and he trusts in Jesus to save him. And God says, 
Now I want you to go to Damascus, but you're not going to be able to see for three days. And they lead him to Damascus. And when Paul gets there, the text says that he starts to pray. Interesting that that was his first response. The first thing Paul does, because his name would go from Saul to Paul to signify the change in his life. The first thing Paul does is he starts to call on the Lord and enter into the presence of the Lord. And soon, within 13 verses of being on his face in the road, he's now in the synagogue proclaiming the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, let's pick it up. I'm sorry I gave you the wrong passage again. We're in chapter 9 instead. Verse 10. It says, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said, get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for he's praying. And he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come and lay hands on him so he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, um, I've read the news clippings. I've heard many things about this man from many people how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief chief priests to bind all who call on your name. That would be me. But the Lord said to him, verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and sons of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed, entered the house, laid his hands on Saul, and said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road, by which you are coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, a few verses later, Paul is in the synagogue preaching about Jesus Christ to the very people that he used to be. Paul is preaching to people who have come to the temple for some kind of Uh, some kind of formal religious ceremony, some kind of ritualized religion that really didn't mean anything to their hearts because the formalized church at this point in the book of Acts was just going through the motions. Now there's this great movement as people get saved by Jesus Christ and the one who persecuted those who love the Lord the most now is standing in the synagogue saying, my life's been changed. Jesus has changed my life. I am different. But before that happens, look back at the text, because there's one more guy. And this guy is Ananias. We don't get a lot of details about Ananias. There's no build-up. There's no background. There's no family history. There's no he's from the line of Joseph, the line of David. There's none of that with Ananias. We have a small little snippet of his life. And what does that tell us? That tells us he was just a normal guy, a normal believer who loved the Lord. There's nothing to distinguish him. There's no mention of unique gifts. There's no mention of a special calling from the Lord or some filling of the Holy Spirit like we see in Acts chapter 2. He's just a faithful servant who loves the Lord, seeks the Lord, walks with the Lord, knows the Word of God, and serves Him in a very wicked place. In many ways, Ananias is just like you and me. And then God comes to him and says, I have an assignment for you, just like he does for you and me. And this assignment will challenge your comfort. It will impact your life. It will put you in a difficult situation that's going to stretch you and force you to trust me on a new level because I want you to go talk to Saul. And you don't see it yet, but there is a huge outcome that's going to come out of your obedience. 
And Ananias says, Lord, that sounds wonderful, but I don't know if you know who Saul is. Um, I've, I've heard about him and how he's persecuting people and how even the chief priests have given him authority to go round up believers. And Lord, you know, I love you and I'm a believer and I'm standing for you in this town of Damascus and I'm calling on your name. And now you're telling me Saul is in town and you want me to go find him? And the Lord says, that's exactly what I want you to do. Because Ananias, he's now filled with the Holy Spirit. His life is different. And you're going to know who he is by the fact that he's praying. And I'm telling you what you're going to do, Ananias. You are going to baptize him. And then you're going to teach him about me. And you're going to prepare him and train him. Because he's my vessel to go into the world and be one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived. Now, that's a pretty heady calling for someone who was just minding their own business a few hours earlier. Imagine if the Lord came to us tomorrow and said, I have a new assignment for you, and it's going to rock your world. It's going to challenge you on every level. It's going to require you to trust in me. You're going to have nothing but my word to go on, that I am going to call you to do this. And if you do this, and when you do this, I'm literally going to change the world. Four different people, a young child, a prophet, a new convert, and a faithful servant. Four different environments, an evil culture, a rebellious and indifferent culture, a revival culture that had opposition, and then a carnal culture. And yet each of these four people, and this is what I want the Spirit to teach us this morning, and I pray He will, Each of these people had one thing in common, and that was that they had an assignment from the Lord to impact the culture. And none of those assignments could be accomplished passively or without action. Christianity is all about action. There's nothing lifeless. There's nothing passive. There's nothing dormant. It is all about the calling of the Lord hearing from the Lord, speaking with the Lord, praising the Lord, studying the Lord's word, serving the Lord, living for the Lord, advancing the name of the Lord. And the Bible is so clear about this that we have to conclude that Christianity that is not active and passionate and strong and loving and faithful, Christianity that doesn't speak and praise and serve and give and, and pray and love really isn't Christianity. Now, that's a strong statement, but that's what the Bible keeps saying over and over again. If you love me, you will serve me. If you love me, you'll tell people about me. If you love me, you won't love yourself more. You will love me. And here we have these four very different examples who all have the same core concept. Because when we give our lives to the Lord and we trust Him to save us and redeem us and change Him, change us, we are then given two types of assignments. Maybe write these down because you're listening so well it's disarming. Or, or maybe you're asleep. Either way, whatever works, but this will help us, okay? The Lord is going to give you two assignments this week. Number one, the overall calling from Jesus Himself to live completely for Him. As believers, Jesus says, now you're mine. I bought you with a price. You are to live completely for you, for me. 
And my assignment, my last commission now to you is to go into the world and represent me and be my ambassador and tell people about me and show my grace in your life by how you live. This is not the prior, uh, the property of, of just pastors or missionaries. Every single believer has this assignment from the Lord, and there are no exceptions. And that isn't to depress us. It's an amazing privilege that God has redeemed us out of sin and has changed us and has put his spirit within us and has said, you're not just my slaves, you're my children. Now, you have instant access to me anytime, and I want you to go tell people about me, and I want you to praise me with joy and gratitude as you serve me faithfully. That's assignment one. Assignment two is more fluid. These are the daily opportunities and responsibilities the Lord gives us to show his love and speak his truth to people around us. And some are unique only to us. The Lord has put you in certain places this week that I will never reach, And I will be in certain places that you will never reach. And you'll talk to people that I don't know. And I'll talk to people that you don't know. Each of us has a unique opportunity to minister. And each of us can be used of the Lord in a powerful way. A little boy who faithfully does what his master tells him to do and opens his heart to the leading of the Lord and one day will become one of the greatest prophets who ever lived, the man who will pour the oil over King David's head and said, I anoint you as king of Israel, who will warn Israel about the price of rejecting God before the consequences come out. This little boy, Samuel, who was willing to not say, Eli, you're a kook. Your sons are idiots. You, you, they're drunk. They're prostituting the temple. No way I'm listening to you. I don't care who this God is. I will not follow him. That's not what he says. Samuel, go back in and say, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And Samuel goes in and lays down and the Lord speaks and he says, speak, Lord. Didn't know the Lord. But his heart was open. A prophet who would remind his nation of the awesomeness and the holiness of God. We need some prophets on our nation to remind of the holiness and awesomeness of God. Who would say to the nation, if you keep sinning, you will deal with the price of it. If you keep sinning, God will not continue forever to be patient. There will be consequences. Turn back. He had a message from the Lord and he was not shy to share it. A religious person who was proud of his judgmentalism and his and his misguided fanaticism who had recognized the fallacy of his arrogance and the fallacy of his self-sufficiency and who would repent and God would not just save him. He would use him to be one of the greatest evangelists who ever lived and he would go and he would face opposition and torture and imprisonment and, and all sorts of mess that God refers to in chapter 9. But he says, with joy and contentment, I will be happy in all circumstances because I know Jesus Christ. And an average believer called to confront his fear. To train someone spiritually who seven days before would have killed him without a moment's notice. He has to go and seek him out and say, I'm going to share with you what I know about Jesus. Because the Lord is going to use you to lead thousands to Him. 
Four people called to action who responded without hesitation. You know, when we're in relationship with the Lord, here's what happens. The Lord speaks and he says, now I want you to do it. And you know what's happened? I think with Christianity over the last 40 or 50 years, we've gotten back the rebellious spirit that Israel said, Israel had, and we've kind of said, I don't really want to do that. I want to keep my options open. You know, this is, a, this is an era of options. So let me explore some other things. Let me take care of myself first, like the rich young ruler. Let me deal with the stuff I need to deal with. And at some point, Lord, I'll come back and I'll do what you asked me to do. And then there are other people that say, well, we don't need to do anything because the Lord does it all. Why doesn't God just do what he wants done? Why, why does he need us? In Acts 1, he says, I'm going to send my spirit. So wouldn't that be enough? Why, why would he choose a ragtag, flaky, unfaithful, scared group of, of untrained disciples? Why would he say to them and to us, you're my vessel. You're the ones I'm going to use. My spirit's coming, but my spirit's only coming to empower you to do the work. Why doesn't God just do the work himself? Well, the answer is very profound. But it's not something we always understand. It's the fact that God doesn't always work separately and from us. In fact, it seems in the New Testament that he delights in using us rather than doing it himself. What a frightening thought that is, isn't it? That God says, you're my body. I'm the head. The head doesn't, the body doesn't function without the head. I cannot move my arm like that without my brain saying, move your arm right to left. Move your arm right to left. I can't walk over here without the brain saying, it's time for your feet to go one in front of the other. And here's how you do it. All instantly, my body doesn't function without the head saying, this is what you're supposed to do. So God says, I'm the head, and I'm telling you now, you're my body. The body is servant to the head. So you're my body, and now I'm calling you to do the work that needs to be done. In other words, I'm telling you, you have a commission. And the commission is to go serve me. You can't just assume that God's just going to do everything and we can kind of sit back and wait for heaven and it's going to be wonderful. We're going to praise the Lord and it's awesome because we're saved. So we don't really have any jobs to do. Let's just kind of carry it out. All throughout Scripture, believers are called to action. You will be hard-pressed to find one example in Scripture where a believer does nothing. Or where a believer does little. In fact, instead it says, go into the world and preach the gospel and make disciples and baptize them. Run the race that's set before you. Put on the armor of God. Do the work of an evangelist. Confront error. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience. Finish the work. Even our faith is active. Don't be anxious about anything, but in prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, bring your requests to me. And while you're doing that, think only about what is pure and what is holy and learn to be content in all things. In other words, Christians, we're on assignment, not only because the Lord's called us to, but because of the urgency of the times. Just in the last month, here are some of the stories in the news. Over 30 Christian churches have been burned in Egypt. 
Christians in Syria are being told to convert to Islam or be forced to leave Syria or be killed. Israel warned this week that Iran may have nuclear weapons within a month. Belgium is now routinely euthanizing people for reasons like blindness, blindness, depression, and anorexia. And they're currently debating legislation which is expected to pass where a parent can kill a terminally ill or suffering child under 18 without their consent. Seven-year-olds in England in the last month have been shown in sex ed classes cartoon pictures of adults watching porn and been told to name the body parts on a picture of a naked girl. Seven-year-olds. This is our world. Not to mention what's going on in our own country. So while we have an assignment from the Lord, go into the world and preach the gospel, we also have to sense the urgency of the times. It is time for us to do this because the days are evil and the time is short. There is no more time to watch. It is now time to do. And Christianity has been in a spectator mode for the last 30 years where we just come and we watch and we go and other people do the work. And that needs to stop. We need to be seeking the Lord and saying, Lord, you have called us to this. You've called us to this work. And I'm just an average Joe like Ananias or an average person like Samuel. But Lord, you have called me to go and to do and to speak. Ananias is no different than you and I. A believer walking with the Lord. He's at home one day. He's just doing his thing. And all of a sudden, the Lord says, I want you to do something uncomfortable. I want you to go and teach and influence this man who a week ago was killing Christians. Think about the questions he asked. Why me? What do I do? Who am I, Lord, that I could do this job? What, what if this guy thinks he's, uh, that I'm unqualified? What if he's faking, Lord? What if he's fake? What if he's not telling the truth? How do I do the job? What do I know? I'm just, I'm just a, a lonely believer up here in Damascus. Wouldn't it be better to give this assignment to somebody else? Our job is not to question the wisdom and leading of the Lord. It's to spring into action when he calls us. There are people around us that need to hear about the Lord. There are people that need to be ministered to and comforted and encouraged and prayed with and loved And honestly, if we don't do it, who will? So like Samuel, we need to remain in the presence of the Lord. And like Isaiah, we need to speak about the holiness of the Lord. And like Saul, we need to have our hearts humbled before the Lord. And like Ananias, we need to be willing to do and say whatever the Lord calls us to do. We are called to an active, practical exercise of our faith. And if you're a believer in this room this morning, you have an assignment and so do I. So what is it? Is the Lord calling you to to join the prayer band? Is the Lord calling you to sing in the choir? Is, Is the Lord calling you to minister to kids and hold babies once a night? Is the Lord calling you to clean the building? Is the Lord calling you to give your testimony? How do we discern that? How do we, how do we understand that? God's not writing on walls anymore. How do we know what that is? Well, if we wake up every morning and we say to the Lord, speak, Lord, I'm listening. Lead me. Show me today what the assignment is. 
It's amazing how the Lord uses our availability to change people's lives. Let me give you two quick examples. My mom and dad were in Iceland a couple weeks ago with uh, Franklin Graham Crusade. And my mom left the crusade early to go back to the hotel. And she was talking to the driver that they had assigned her. And she was asking her him, what did you think about the crusade? And in the span of five minutes, she took him to the point of saying, do you know Jesus Christ? And the driver committed his life to the Lord right in the cab. They just are, uh, went to Austria a couple days ago. And the hotel clerk at the hotel, the Sheridan, is a girl they led to the Lord. Now she's the manager. Just by talking. Just by saying, do you know Jesus Christ? Have you given your life to the Lord? Do you know what it means that God loves you? Do you know what it means to know the mercy of God? This comes from being willing to serve in an active way. Not waiting. Not being passive. Look, we all struggle with that, right? We all, uh, I don't know, I don't know if, if I can take the initiative. But when we do, God empowers us. And he says, if you follow my example, then you will see lives change. Jesus never sat back and said, I don't feel like working today. I don't feel like healing the sick. People have needs, tell them to go away. Now, that's what the disciples were saying. Send the kids away. Lord, people need to eat. Come on, we got to get some rest. I'm hungry here. No, Jesus says, tell them to sit down. I'm going to do something. When we take the initiative, God works. Being like Christ isn't just about holiness. It's about action. Who will, I go, who will go? Who will speak? Who will stand for me? The shortage today that the Lord has is laborers to go into the harvest. And if you and I feel unprepared and ill-equipped, then we better start getting equipped. If we're not holy, then we start to be holy. If we don't feel like we're separate from the world, then we need to put the world aside and get separate from the world. If we're not filled with the Spirit, then we need to empty ourselves and ask the Spirit to fill us. If we don't feel trained, then we better start studying the Word. If we don't know how to pray, then we better get on our knees. It is not enough to say, I don't know what to do. Because the Lord has got an assignment for us. And we need to have the attitude of Samuel, Lord, I'm willing, and the attitude of Ananias, I'll go wherever you want. The Lord's assignment, let me finish. The Lord's assignment is real simple. Go and speak. Love me and love others. Tell people about my love and show them how you live. The Lord is looking for people who are walking with him and listening him, who will go show his love and who will talk about him like Jen did, like the choir did, like someone did once in sharing the gospel with us where they said, you know what? This has changed my life. Can I tell you about it? Somebody at some point came to us and said, I want you to know about God's love and God's mercy and God's forgiveness. And you can experience it just like I did. The Bible says, how will they know unless they hear? And how will they hear unless someone tells them? That's us. 
How will they know the love of the Lord unless they see it in our lives? If I'm going to say to somebody, God is love and he gave his son for you, then I better be showing it in how I live. Because if I'm a jerk and I'm critical and I'm mean, they're going to say, what are you talking about? It hasn't changed you one bit. We have words of life. The world's nasty, isn't it? It's mean, it's critical, it's harsh. Everything's awful right now, but we have words of life and we can go see souls restored forever. So how are we going to do it? Who are we going to show love to this week? Who are we going to share the gospel with this week? Who are we going to pray with? You're going to be here Wednesday night to pray with somebody and put your arms around somebody and say, you're hurting right now. I'm going to pray for you. Who are we going to minister to this week? Ladies, who are you going to invite to the tea? Who are you going to say, come sit at my table and hear the gospel? We have this opportunity to show this amazing video that presents the gospel so clearly. Who are we going to bring to that? The time is now. Because the time is short. And God's given us assignments. Let's close our eyes. Lord, we ask you to help us this morning. This is a challenging word for our comfort. This is something many times, Lord, if we're going to be honest, that's hard for us to hear because we know it requires. But Lord, I pray you would break us out of anything that would hold us back. Break our pride, break our stubbornness, break our unwillingness, break our busyness. Help us to see the opportunities right around us to share your gospel, to minister to somebody, to show somebody love. Lord, if we don't do it, who will? You've given us this assignment. You've told us that we're the ones that have to do this. And Lord, that's not an obligation, that's a joy. Because you've changed our lives forever and we praise you for that. My life this morning, Lord, is completely different because of Jesus Christ. And that gives me and my brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, the opportunity to make a tremendous impact in this world. Lord, we ask you right now to do that in our midst. Not to advance a church, not to advance a cause, but to advance you, Lord, that people would know you. All around us, Lord, there are people that desperately need to know that Jesus Christ died and rose again for their sins. All around us, people need the grace and forgiveness that only you can offer. Use us, Lord, and may we be usable to you. Plan opportunities this week, Lord, for us to tell people about you. Plan opportunities for us to invite somebody to something where they'll hear the gospel. Give us boldness and courage and strength because your spirit empowers us. And Lord, we pray you would bring a great harvest where we would praise you and exalt you and say, look how good the Lord is. We know that from our lives, Lord. We know that's true. Now, may we not hold it in anymore. Help us, Lord, this week. Give us strength and courage. 
And may you be honored in all that we do and in how we live and in what we speak. We thank you and praise you. And Lord, we love you so much. We pray this in the name of our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died and rose again for us. Amen. Let's stand together. I don't have any closing word. I've talked long enough. I don't have a closing song this week. I just want to say praise the Lord. He's good, isn't he? We get the opportunity now to go out and tell people about the one who's changed our lives. We get the opportunity to serve people because God served us. Can you believe that? He came to be our servant so that we would know him and serve him. There's no way we can say, I don't have anything to do this week. I'm not talking about the to-do list. I'm talking about assignment for the Lord. Let's be available to him and see him work. And you know what? We're going to have testimony after testimony every week of people saying, here's what the Lord did. Wouldn't that be awesome? I don't need to preach every week. Let's just have testimony after testimony every week. People saying, this is what the Lord did this week. We'll praise him and give him glory. God bless you and help you and encourage you and strengthen you this week as you go to serve him.